This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. This is the Deep Dive, and this is Brooke Spector. And today we're talking to Musi Maimani. For those of you who don't know, Musi is a political figure in South Africa. Now, who doesn't really know who he is? Of course, we all know who he is. He's a 42-year-old man. Uh, he's got university degrees from the University of South Africa, Wits, and Bangor University in Wales. The last one was in theology, but the previous one was in management and business. Uh, that's kind of a switch. Uh, we'll get to that, too. Um, he's been in a, a number of different political functions and, and formations, uh, and most recently, he has launched his new political party, Build One South Africa, BOSA, B-O-S-A. Uh, Lucy, welcome to the show, and I'm glad you could join us. And I think we're doing something of a of a circuit of political figures from various parties where they get to explain themselves to an audience rather than just than just a quick two or three minutes of uh, you know chit chat and then thanks very much and goodbye. So this, I hope, is a way of peeling back a little bit, uh, and we will get into that. Tell me. What got you into politics in the first place? Why didn't you, if you had a degree in theology, why didn't you stay that course? Uh, thank you. And uh, it's great to be on here. And I send my greetings to all people who are listening. And, uh, certainly all of us in life are orientated towards, I think I grew up with that sense of justice, that sense of the world simply ain't right and we need to do something about fixing it. And I grew up in a very staunch Catholic home. I always thought I'd be a priest in that sense. But as I grew up realizing more and more that our influence on the world is one that we've all got a personal faith and a personal belief about what the world could do, I certainly felt that the impression of justice that I found in my theology was something I could quite comfortably preach from the pulpit, but also understand that it needed addressing in the world when too many people are left out. So so to me, I don't see what I do today any more or less than just classically what uh, someone who has studied theology would do. I think it has given me a range. And my second master's was in public administration, and now I'm doing a PhD in local government economics, still again, trying to make sure those who are left out are included. So that's been my journey. And uh, it's been a, a great um, if you like, um, chemistry between what is what I would deem spiritual and what I would see as the impact that you can have in society. A number of, number of religious figures in this country over the years and uh, in the United States as well um, made the jump in many ways from theology to politics, uh, in a sense saying that uh, religion wasn't just for Sunday morning. Uh, I mean, great leaders have been forged in in faith communities. You know, uh, when you think about people like Martin Luther King, I, I draw great inspiration from his words. Uh, his articulation of a vision was no more or less uh, spiritual as it was social in its impact. The foundations of the liberation movement here in South Africa, the NC, were in a Methodist church by a bunch of clergymen who thought the world was unjust, 
when I think about the collapse of apartheid in and of itself, it was a bunch of leaders like Bears, Nodia, and so many others who realized that there was something inherently wrong about racial discrimination. So to me, it's not to suggest that all leaders are forged through uh, out of the religious space, but it is certainly one of the areas that we found people with a, a deeper sense that there, there must be something greater that not only themselves, but they project a sense of hope in the challenge, in the midst of the challenges that we face today. Um, some people would argue that uh, this there's a conflict between um, this kind of politics, uh, drawing on a sense of moral values and ideals and ideas, stands in a dangerous kind of contradiction with uh, identity politics. Uh, my group needs help. My group needs more. Uh, I don't care who I have to mess with, but I want something uh, for my people. Uh, is, is that a problem for you? Look, I think the inherent dilemma here is not emanating from the type of politics. It's a lack of generosity. I think a generosity of spirit, your values ought to begin there. In fact, one of the values I speak at length about is the value of Ubuntu. The idea that a fellow, I see you as a fellow human being and that I'm incomplete and that your experience to, you know, in Africa, we talk about Ubuntu, this idea that a person is a person by other people, which is the very sense that is fused into our fabric, that our interconnectedness matters. So we have to fight for those. We have to advance those values. Otherwise, we lead in a society where exactly that, we're polarized on the basis of identity because we then lose out on the generosity of spirit that says, I might not share common faith with you, I might not even share some common beliefs with you, but I'm willing to hear you, respect you, and uphold your right to hold those views. So so I, I, I think it's citizens like myself and many others in the world. By the way, I happen to think that the majority of citizens in the world would probably sit in that in that place. We've seen that the political capital that's been derived from polarization has been rewarded in certain countries. And as a result of that, it seems to be springing up all over the world. But I think we will head into a correction, as I saw in a country like Zambia, where a centrist like HH um, was elected and was then able to say, here's the values I want to put forward. And I think societies will really, as the pendulum has swung one way, will return back to a space where we can all agree on a sense of generosity, decency, and values of Ubuntu that say, I see the humanity in others. Without making this too personal and, uh, you know, tell, wave me off if I've, if I've gone down a path that you, you're uncomfortable with, um, does the fact that, that your, your family represents, uh, an interracial model, uh, does that give you a, a, a broader or a bigger sense of ideal idea politics as opposed to identity politics? Uh, and, you know, if I could ask your children, maybe even how they think about it, what would they say, perhaps? Yeah. Look, I mean, when when my wife Natalie and I got married, we were certainly not making a political statement. We were two young people who fell in love and decided that we ought to get married. And we've got three beautiful kids. But I think even at that point, you know, when I, when I think about my own family of origin, my parents lived through the brutality of apartheid. My mother was a cashier. My father 
is incredibly smart but couldn't get an education and worked in a factory. Yet never did it ever come to a day where they taught us racism or the hatred of another person by the color of their skins. And furthermore, when I introduced their new daughter-in-law, who was of a different race to them, they recognized the fact that she was a fellow human being. So what that does is that it fused into my own ability to be hypocritical of me, to suggest that it is improbable for human beings of different races to work together. But it has given me an even greater resolve. And it's inspired even by people like Nelson Mandela and many others, who whose story is not told that for them, they wanted to fight off tribalism. And so if you notice that Mandela's first wife was a Sutu woman married to a Tosa man who Nelson Mandela was, because there was a dynamic within them that made them realize that if we're going to fight off the forces at personal convictions, we ought to model and live through them. And people like Walter Sisulu come from families that are mixed. So I think history is littered with human beings who went over and said it's possible that we could live together. And I'm privileged in some ways that I get to come home and celebrate this diverse family. And one of the things that have been interesting for us is that we've had the age-old debate. Are we a melting pot or, in, in fact, diverse in identity and united in that? And it's beautiful for me to be able to even sit down with my kids and say to them, Daddy is black and therefore Granny and Grandpa are black. This is the history of black people. This is what apartheid would have meant if... The laws were being kept to be legal for me to be married to mommy. But I want you to know mommy is a white South African. Here's a history. Here's the advantages you accrued as a function of apartheid. And that's why granny comes from. But in both that dynamic, you need to appreciate that mommy and I still share a common identity of being my manis. And so are you guys. And we can forge together a future that is shared for all of us. So to me, it actually emboldens that diversity works that we ought not to just simply settle for this color blindness as if to suggest that human beings don't have an identity, but that we actually can build a united in our diversity as the constitution of South Africa purports and a vision for one South Africa, or at least to build that one South Africa is something that I hold dear. If I were to draw a cartoon of you, uh, I would have a bubble over your head and the words in the bubble would be, it's possible. I live in that world, so I appreciate what you're saying. I, I, I think it, 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 it is profoundly possible. And, and it's worth fighting for because the alternative is too ghastly to imagine. Because if we allow people to split people, to divide as we're seeing in the world, I happen to think that part of the difficulties that countries like the U.S. and countries in many others are faced up to is because polarization has taken root in society, that almost as a denatured society, it even forces people never to accept truth or facts. Or eventually, you end up in a society where it's us versus them, and your us is your race or your gender or your whatever, as opposed to recognizing the shared humanity that we have. I'm going to pose a question to you. Then I'm going to take a quick commercial break. Sponsors, and have to, we have to be nice, nice to our sponsors. But the question will be: Think of you'll have like a minute or two to think about it. Is You've had some ups and some downs uh, politically in various political structures. What are the lessons that you draw from these things, successes, failures? Uh, I, I once talked to a venture capitalist who told me that he never invests in anybody unless they've gone bankrupt two or three times. But uh, let me 
pose that question to you uh, as a politician. But first, let's go to our first break, which is... This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. We are speaking with Lucy Maimani, who is now the head of, the founder of, the leading figure in uh, Build One South Africa. And before we took our first commercial break, I asked him a question, and he's had a chance to think about it for a second, I hope, um, that given his political fortunes, which have had peaks and valleys over the last number of years, what are the lessons that he has drawn from these circumstances? What uh, what, what did you discover about yourself and about politics from these experiences and these adventures and these swings and roundabouts? Yeah, that there's no straight path to success. I sometimes think that, you know, when we lef- reflect on history, we look at many leaders and we think, we, we, I, one of my people I celebrate is someone like Barack Obama. And when you think about Barack Obama, you think about his campaign, his success, his president. But we forget the election results he's lost. So, so there is never a straight path to victory. The second is stick to your convictions. You know. They'll cost you a lot. One of the lowest points in my life was in 2019. And, and that was a tough period. It was a toxic environment. It was ugly. I had to say, even though at the point of walking away, I was walking away from a parliamentary seat. I was leader of the opposition. I was certain that I would win an internal party congress. But I felt the direction wasn't quite what I aligned with, and it was a disjuncture with some of my values. And out of conviction, you have to walk away. And it's hard. Uh, otherwise, it would have been you know, convenient to just stick it out and forget what was going on, but we had to walk away. So, you know, I think Theodore Roosevelt was correct in in, in her summation that, you have to be the man in the arena. It's the, you have to taste both victory and defeat. And so for me, I've learned that even in the midst of failure, the only thing you have to hold on to is your convictions. I, I don't always think that leaders are superhuman beings or anything like that. I just think your ability to lead is born out of whether you are able to hold on to your convictions at the assault of those convictions. And that's been the biggest lesson. And the last three years have given me time to reflect on that. Does it mean pain, uh, as painful as those experiences were, would I go through it again? Certainly, because I think it's worthwhile to fight for the things we, we fight for. And you keep holding on to those both in failure and success. Now, you formed this new party, which, uh, as far as I understand it, does not yet have a single toehold in the National Assembly. You may be building a constituency province by province, but the electoral, what does they call it now, the elect, the elections amendment bill, uh, as it was originally proposed by some, would have made it much easier for candidate, for candidates like yourself or parties like yourself or individual candidates to run for election. Uh, and it, as best I understand it, that's not going to be the way necessarily it's going to shake out for the 2024 election, despite a, a court ruling. Does that make it more complicated for you? Are you poised to, to deal with this turn of events or to fight it further in, in courts or just where do you sit on this? Look, I think the principle of electoral reform is vital. 
is vital in a country that suffered from state capture. So before we even get to who can be elected and who can't be, we must establish the principle that says politicians ought to be accountable to people and that accountability is best meted out in a constituency-based model. So those are the fundamentals of our argument. Is that, and I still would think that anyone who comes into a parliamentary election needs to continue that fight because it will be crucial for, for, for South Africa given our recent history. But on the second, of course, recognition of the fact that the law doesn't make that accountability or at least a direct election that, and even for the direct election of the president to be possible, we had to form a political party. And I'm grateful to have started with Build One South Africa because I think we've gone back to communities and said, what would you like to see your political party do? Would you be able to get communities to rally around particular candidates so that when people stand up in parliament, they represent the people? And so we are going towards the 2024 election with a massive fight on our hands. We hold the view that there are enough voters who sit in the middle uh, who are interested in our message who that constituency in respective provinces are people who not only want change, but they, as we always say, are economically excluded. And we want to put a job in every home and we want to make sure each child gets educated. And, and, and these are communities that are coming forward with us. So to me, I'm optimistic about 2024. I really think that this is probably going to be the most significant election in South Africa, given that it will be 30 years of democracy in a country with whose unemployment rate for young people is over three quarters. And um, ultimately, who, as we heard in the midterm budget statement, that growth trajectories are at about 1.9% in the medium term, which means that you are not going to curb unemployment. You are simply going to see a rise in it and a rise of poverty and a miseducation of our young people. So to me, the fight can never be more emboldening. So I'm looking forward to 2024, and there's nothing, there's also not something nice about being fresh in the market, rather than the age-old, stale political parties, same old ideas, still really debating a better future for my parents rather than my kids. Some years ago, um, I had a chance to read a speech by the late F.W. de Klerk, uh, he'd given it at a, uh, at a university meeting. This would have been about 1996, 97. And although I don't have it right in front of me, the gist of, of his comment was one of the, the key things that drove him to negotiate, to, to go towards negotiation rather than what his security cluster might have argued for was the realization that whatever they did, the lives of their children would not be as good as their lives had been when they were children. And that that was a powerful stick to convince him that the future of the country had to be found in another direction other than the continuation of the security stalemate that existed in the late 80s and very beginning of the 1990s. Um, you're heading in a direction where uh, there will be in an election, undoubtedly, the major party will still be the African National Congress. Whether they're 50% or above is, you know, I'll leave that to the fortune tellers. But the argument now is that you and other parties like yours are busy nibbling at the edges of the Democratic Alliance's support base 
rather than gaining power, gaining influence, gaining support from the, the current dominant party. And if that's true, then the equilibrium remains largely the same as it has been. Do you see it that way, or do you have a very different view on the matter? No, I, I see it differently, um, mainly because the model we've taken on the table compels us to think about that scenario in a vastly different way. So if you think about a party chairperson, he's an ex-ANC person who really was one of the first people to organize Nelson Mandela's rally in Kabecha, successful business person in their right. We have a deputy leader in Ubuntu who is a businesswoman in her right, fresh to politics. And the reason, and I can go on, we've got business people who have joined our own organization standing in their communities. And the reason you go about that route is that you then immediately say, between the message and the messengers and the candidates you're going to put forward, they need to go farm out new constituencies. Rather than focus on being oppositional to the DA or to the ANC, that's not my job. My job is to go post-liberation, post-ANC. What then? That's the question. So metaphorically, it would be tempting to say, if there's 10 million votes on the table, all you are doing is splitting that even further, and you're getting fragmentations of that. I'm going, no, actually, potentially, there's a great more, as the strategists would call it, more blue ocean strategy, where there are more people who are not even engaged in the voting process that I would sincerely believe we need to be giving a message to engaging them in politics. And globally, I think the trends are pointing towards my thinking. Because when you look at a vote like Brexit, Brexit was won by young people. Young people came out and participated in an election. Lesotho has just held this election, not far from here. Literally a candidate who started from nowhere has now been able to successfully garner the success of young people voting them in. H.H., Hakienda Echilema and Zambia proved the theorem to say young people can be engaged in new formations. His party, UPND, was started in 2009. So in all fairness, I, I, I do think that we've got to build beyond the current infrastructure, produce a message that is future-focused, and go grow an electorate outside the current status quo. Some of what you're saying seems to me to rest on the idea that there are 40 plus percent of people who at this point choose not to vote at all. Uh, and that uh, your strategy presumes the idea you can reach them with the idea of forget the old alliances and old, uh, relationships. We have a new set of ideas for a new time and new challenges and, and so forth. Um, but in practical terms, if, let's say, for the sake of argument, you were to enter government, whether as a partner or even in that somewhat more uh, elusive possibility as as the chosen person to be in charge, uh, what would be the practical, let's say, the three most important things you would do in practical terms rather than uh, ideal terms? What, what, what would you what would you tell your your listeners, your countrymen and women, the world, uh, this is what we're going to do in our first hundred days, our first thousand days, whatever it might be. On the economy, practically, I think what South Africa needs is a, is a public-private venture capital 
that will make it possible for us to stimulate microenterprise so that those businesses are able to employ more people. South Africa's anomaly, contrary to you know, the rest of the world, in fact, in many developed economies, is that it's on the back of only large employers. It doesn't focus a lot on micro-enterprise, small businesses, and supporting those for them to thrive. So a venture capital is one of the things that's crucial on. I want to introduce a form of charter schools uh, in the education space so that we may, we enable it with legislation. But what, why can't it be that in a township community where majority black South Africans live, they can get the best public-private education. We already are spending 13,500 rands on each school, in each child per year. Merge that with what private sector intervention. We're able to give the best quality education closer to home for kids. I've always said that police cannot just remain a national competence. We need to bring it down to closer so that we aggregate the South African police service, the metro police, so that you end up with what is typically like a Joburg metro police but it becomes a job with police because it will have saps and the traffic police brought together. So you've got a bigger force to fight crime in Johannesburg. But the importance of bringing it closer down is that intelligence, it needs to come closer down to people. Whilst you might have national security intelligence, but you also need domestic intelligence. Most people know who the criminals are. And we prioritize murder. So if anyone commits murder, the criminal justice system is quick to respond. And then lastly, I do want to digitize the state. I think South Africa's state is not digital enough, so it doesn't know what it doesn't know. It doesn't know its citizens. It doesn't know where crime is taking. It doesn't benefit from big data. It doesn't use blockchain for transactions. And so corruption thrives. The state is incapable. So we need to digitize it as quickly as we can so that you as a citizen can have your rights protected, but the state also is able to intervene in a much more effective way. But, you know, I could go on in multiple spaces, but I thought let me just give just those few. Let's take a break here, but I'll pose another question for you uh, while I'm re- while I'm doing this. Uh, in the international sphere, how would you align or realign South Africa with the events, circumstances, and major players in the world? Let's think about that for a second. We're talking with Musi Maimani, who's the head of Build One South Africa. Uh, but first, this important message. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. This is Brooke Spector, and we're speaking with Musi Maimani on the Deep Dive. Musi is uh, the head of his newly formed political party, Build One South Africa. And before the commercial break, I asked him, um, if he were in a position of actual power in the government post the 2024 election, how would he push to realign South Africa's international relations? Or does he think they're pretty, they're, they're right where they should be right now? No, I think certainly South Africa doesn't uh, still aligns itself in a, what the economists described as uh, the, the pre-Berlin Wall type geopolitical arrangements. I think South Africa needs to rethink that position. I would certainly begin at the point of values and make the case that if our values are based on Ubuntu, which naturally leads itself to the conversation about human rights, if we decide for ourselves what our economic objectives are, such as being able to put a job in every home and a growth 
in a bilateral partnership with foreign direct investments. And then lastly, if we class ourselves a liberal democratic country, that means that the independence of media, judiciary, and the advancement of democracy in countries becomes the lodestar that we go with. Then we can only align with countries that support that. And the reason then I highlight that is that it immediately goes into a far more stronger positioning when you go into countries like Zimbabwe, where I think human rights are in violation. I'm very clear about the fact that democracy is not thriving there, and history has proven it with the challenging of elections recently. South Africa must directly intervene in that space and ensure that citizens in Zimbabwe have rights, because it's the best way we deal with the African uh, and, and many African countries, where countries still today, I go, I think about what is happening in um, in various parts where people are wanting to advance term limits, violating um, human rights, as we saw with Omar al-Bashir. These are things South Africa simply cannot be supportive of if you're a self-respecting country that upholds human rights. As far as the global ge- uh, geopolitics are concerned, again, our biggest trading partner still remains to this day, the EU zone, coupled with what happens in the U.S., and, all of that. and I think those are important relationships to maintain. If I think about even our bilateral relations with the U.S., those need further strengthening given issues like AGOA, given issues like PEPFAR, and the partnership with we have with the U.S. in terms of their investment drive here. But furthermore, even around issues of corporations around security globally, as we now see what's happening in the world in the fight there, South Africa needed not to be ambivalent on the issue of Russia, Ukraine. We needed to be stronger at saying that this is an unprovoked war. We do not need it. And the fact that uh, South Africa and the, and the UN Security Council sponsored a motion that ultimately sought to uh, not sanction Russia indicates to me that we are we will have a history that will look upon us and say, when human rights were being violated, a country was being invaded, you stood on the wrong side. So we've got to reset it on values. And foreign policy, as um, many have said, it's, you know, it's on a spectrum. So at the end of the day, we've got to be stronger on our own values, stronger on our trade, stronger on security, and be clear that where we participate, those principles guide what we do. That sounds a little bit like an echo of Nelson Mandela's highly principled moral foreign policy uh, that was enunciated back in 1993, I think, in an article in Foreign Affairs and in other forums. Um, now, it's always difficult to balance ideal values and practical applications, but that's the job of people in government. And let me change gears a little bit because you obviously are a well-read individual and you're a thoughtful man and you've done a lot of studying. You're still doing studying uh, in addition to uh, your political work and your new uh, venture capital firm. Or, or I'm not quite sure how to define it. Um, but I, it's a question I always ask politicians because it, it, it helps me understand the workings of their minds. What books are you reading or <laughs> what books have most influenced you over time? Uh, there have been a couple. I mean, top of mind, I thought um, authors like Yasha Monk have done incredible work. Uh, his new book, The Great Experiment, was a really refreshing read in terms of thinking about policy. I've been reading through Paul Collier's book on Exodus, thinking about this immigration debate that's going on right now. 
Uh, at this point in time, I'm reading a book called Economic Dignity by one of um, the U.S. Uh, President Obama's economic advisor for the last number of years, looking at how people participate in that. And then I read uh, local books. I just finished a book that was beautiful to read called um, When the Village Sleeps, which is a beautiful story about what happens in particularly families that immigrate from the Eastern Cape to Cape Town and the lived experiences of what happens in those townships and those communities. An incredibly beautiful book. Um, so, so currently at the moment, yeah, those are the, those are the books that I'm, CTN is fight against cancer and sport and all of that. And so it draws a bit of inspiration. Multiple books at a single time. Uh, you keep them all in balance somehow and you come back to them and finish them as you, as you move along, uh, is that you, or do you are you methodical? You up the next. No, I, I like to channel hop. Like even when I watch television, you know, I watch multiple channels at the same time. So why can't we do that to books? And today's media is so cool in that you can also not uh, just read books; you can have Audible, all of those kinds of technology. So when I go for a run, sometimes my running speed reflects which book I'm reading. So if it's a if it's one of these deep thinking ones, I look at my pace on my on my running app and I realize that I'd actually slow down to listen more to the book than actually focus on the exercise of running itself. So that, yeah, I can understand that. I mean, I, I, I keep a whole bunch of things and uh, my wife is always saying, are you reading all of these? And I said, yes, <laughs> bit by bit by bit, we're working our way through some of them are books of short stories. So I, I have a perfectly justifiable position. Others are so dense and so heavy that after 15 minutes, I, I've got to move on to something a little lighter. Let's look in practical terms over the next you, next year and a half or thereabouts uh, in the remaining time. Uh, we're speaking with Musi Maimani. He's the head of his new political party, Build One South Africa. He's a veteran of various other political formations. It's a long list. And he's still just 42, which uh, intrigues me. I have in my mind, here's something you probably haven't heard before. I have in my mind a televised debate between you and Julius Malema. I'd love to have one. Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> it would be super. I'd, uh, I'd also like to throw in the current president in that discussion. It would be fun. Yeah, a three-sided debate is more interesting um, although it's harder to manage, you, you have to be sort of a lion tamer with, uh, you know, with a stick and a whip and everything else. It's a pity that we live in a country that doesn't uphold the tradition. In fact, President Mandela and President Declerc had a, had a televised television and a debate and that still today, South Africans still hanker to listen to some of the content in that. It's a pity in a party type system post 94, we've really reduced it to now like that the parties have their rallies and the two shall never meet. Whereas I do think if we had a direct election, people must come and account for their ideas. The clerk Mandela debates were never friendly. They didn't, they, they didn't shake hands and give each other a, a high five and a warm embrace after it was all over. They, they showed some teeth, I think. Um, yeah. But people sat on the edge of their chairs listening or watching these things because they really did uh, that they spoke to the heart of what the country would look like when 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 these large figures figured out how they were going to work together or not 
over the next year and a half, say, till whenever the next election is actually scheduled for, what in practical terms are the steps that you're going to take uh, to achieve uh, an electoral vitality or a position? So immediately we, we, you know, we go to all nine provinces and we want to try and get um, not only a groundswell of citizens there in their communities, uh, recognizing the work that we do, being affiliates of Build One South Africa and working together towards uh, building a groundswell of people so for an election. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we want to identify the best 200 South Africans because that is a long process. That's about making sure that when we say this person is going to represent you in parliament, we know that they're ethical, they've got no criminal records, and we know that they've really been brought down to to a genuine understanding of what the challenges of this country are being well-schooled in that. So, so that will be a program where we're rolling out, especially for the National Assembly. We obviously, like any other political party, depend on how well we do in the funding component. So we're going out to not only set up an online platform where people can make donations, but engaging citizens who are committed to our democracy, committed to this country to be able to contribute to it. But lastly, I, I think... One of the beauties of the, and you might be old enough to remember such a time as this, but the struggle collectively all over the world, if you think about the 60s, was always in sync. You could not deny the fact that when Mandela delivered his speech in the Ravonia trial, that it had echoes of the civil rights movements in the U.S. You can't deny that there was a genuine global relations about what that broader struggle was. I think there must be better alignment about what the post-COVID world looks like because I think COVID was a was a collapse of another type of Berlin Wall. It was a signaling of an end of an era and a beginning of a new one. Here you and I are talking on Zoom. I think five years ago that would not have been a fault. But so that's a very simplistic thing. But the more broader things is what is our relationship globally? Because I think as countries are going, well, we've seen what our interconnectedness means and what it doesn't mean. What does it mean from a pharmacological point of view, especially for the continent of Africa? So the reason I cite that is because I think as Build One South Africa, we don't want to just be a South African brand. I think we want to be an African brand and ultimately contribute to the global discourse. And so the next number of years will be about that engagement is I'm already engaged with people like Nelson Chamisa in Zimbabwe, people like Hakiende Chilema in Zambia, Lazarus Chakwera in Malawi, the opposition in Tanzania and Angola, looking at what happens in the continent in Senegal and um, uh, Cote d'Ivoire and the various respective countries like that. It's important for Africa to be able to communicate what will happen next in the world because, as Steve Biko so correctly put it, We've got to offer the world a much more human face. And I, and I, and I, and I do think that the next decade will be about the most defining for the continent of Africa as we even grapple with issues about how do we transition in a much more carbon decreasing way to sustain a climate that's inhabitable for most human beings. So, so these are global conversations that South Africa can't have on its own. So we've got to find our own voice collectively. In the, Moments before we actually started our program, 
uh, you and I were, were were discussing briefly the the question of a of a report or a terror a warning a, a possibility of a of a terror attack in in the Santon area over the weekend, um, and that in my mind uh, at least in some way parallels the question of a very large Russian uh, yacht that is theoretically uh, aiming to berth in Cape Town. Is all of this, take, uh, are those things taken together, uh, do they give you pause about the nature of the country's ability now to defend itself? It does. It also is symbolic of the fact that we've watched the last number of the last 10 years, the hollowing out of our army. And now for most citizens would think the army simply deploys troops to the ground, but army that deals with counter terror and um, that type of intelligence and it's hollowing out is having this devastating effect. And so to me, one of the bigger disappointments having given the warning by the U S embassy and its responsibility to warn its own citizens why South Africa hasn't taken a similar stance to say, well, here's what a warning is to our own citizens. Here's the steps we've taken to protect ourselves. And here are the risks that that citizens must avoid and how we mitigate against them. Instead, there's been zero leadership from the South African government. It almost feels like they read the email and just responded, noted. As the, and, and, and I think it puts not only the the country's security at risk, but it puts a greater anxiety on South Africans who, even right now, as you've been listening to talk radio and many other stations, people are going, there's a big Soweto derby gathering in Soweto. There's a pride march that's taking place in Santon. Which of those events are target points? So, and, and, and what do you say to business? What are the security measures? Have we got enough at deployment of sniffer dogs? And all of what, all of that means. It, you know, the job of public leadership is when a nation's anxiety rises, your job as the first citizen is to be able to communicate a degree of calm that reminds people that you know what is going on. Silence in this instance isn't golden. Frankly, it's just plain yellow. And I think it does remind us again the significance of South Africa and the continent, otherwise a terror attack here would be meaningless in some ways. But it does also show that because we've seen some of these attacks happen in other uh, U.S. embassies, at least all over the all over the continent, how important symbolically South Africa is. And, and I think our collaboration with the world is once again going to be counted on as to who our allies are in times such as this one. We are speaking with Musi Maimani, the head of his new political party, Build One South Africa, and we'll be right back. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector, and we've been speaking with Musi Maimani, uh, the head of Build One South Africa, um, as a, in a closing with just say a minute or so, because I know you have a schedule, uh, that requires you to actually do some work. Uh, <laughs> but if you had to give a message to your fellow South Africans about the future, uh, what would it be? Yeah. 
This is an unbelievable country. It's a great country. It's a country, sure, going through great difficulty, but we all have one South Africa. We don't have a spare one sitting anywhere. And when our constitution says it belongs to all who live in it, black and white, that I would urge that the belong part is something that we need to take cognizance of. So I'm inviting South Africans to say, come, let's work together to build. It's what you do in business. It's what you do in civic society. It's what you do. And in many ways, voting is an outcome of that. But my invitation to you is that let's all focus on building. Let's hold the state much more accountable. And furthermore, I'm inviting South Africans to realize that 2024 will be a watershed election and they need to register now to participate, particularly young people, to say we have a country to build that belongs to us. You know, the best example I've seen recently is that when we protested against e-tolls 10 years ago, people said you were mad, the state would insist on e-tolls, etc., etc. Today, e-tolls are not something that the citizens have to carry a further burden for. They're carrying a burden. And I think there's a victory in collective action that is deliberate that says we need change. And I think we can, and we've got a lot to lose, but let's do it. We have been speaking with Musi Maimani, the head of Build One South Africa. I thank you for sharing uh, your time with us. I hope listeners find it interesting and entertaining and, above all, informative. And we will be back next week with another guest, another important figure in politics, business, thought, the arts, somewhere. I'm not quite sure what yet, but always a different mix for each Friday morning. Musi, thanks again for your time, and we hope to speak to you again soon. Take care. Thank you. God bless you.